Hi everyone, it's AJ from the future here again to apologize again. <laughs> the technical issues that we had from last episode carried over to this one. For real though, next episode we will be fine. I'll have a new computer, we will be comfortable with the new program, and we won't press any of the wrong buttons next time. So thanks for bearing with us again. I think there's a lot of good information in here, even if sometimes it's a little hard to hear me. So thanks for bearing with us, and we'll see you next time. and welcome to Fun Problems, the Problems of Fun. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And this is the only board game design podcast in the entire world. We invented the concept, copyright, trademark, Peter and AJ, all rights reserved. No one else may ever talk about these concepts, ever. We are here to help you design games. And we're going to do that in a very specific sense this week. AJ, what are we going to do? Today we're going to define game terminology, following up from last episode. Before we jump into that, I want to do some follow-up from our episode in which we assessed 30 different hooks by Nate Wolf. I think that was the name of the episode. Uh, <laughs> uh, we got a bunch of listeners to submit hooks for their games in, and we went through them and gave hopefully useful feedback, hopefully insightful, interesting, amazing, incredible, beautiful, handsome, and sexy feedback. And as we always do, I had some notes of follow-up that I want to give. Hit me. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm probably being too pedantic, and you can cut this out in editing if you like. At one point, I said the words, I don't think it's a strong support hook. I was referring to the game Robots. What I in fact meant was, I do think that's a strong support hook. I said the exact opposite of what I meant, and that annoyed me, so I need to correct myself. <laughs> do you have any follow-up? I do not. Um, I would slightly adjust some of the things that I said to agree more with you on second one, <laughs> actually. <laughs> I would listen to a pitch, and I'd hear myself talking and be like, uh, I, I moderately agree with that, but I feel like I was a little harsh. And then you'd be like, you're a little harsh, AJ, and vice versa. <laughs> uh, just, uh, ignore everything I said. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, two other small things. One was that during the only part of the podcast where we're allowed to have fun, the fun question at the end, you asked me a game from my childhood that I think really holds up. And this game has many titles many of which we're not allowed to say because we are a clean podcast, but I knew it as Scumbag. Do you know the game I'm talking about? Don't think so. It's, it's, it's oh, real. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Blank Hole? Yeah, <laughs> yeah or, 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 or Blanks and Presidents. Or, there's all kinds of different names for it. Anyway, uh, there was a very... My earliest foray into game design was developing a very specific form of that game and then playing it for 10 years. And so that one I'd be really keen to revisit and see if it holds up. And to the point where we were considering publishing that as a jelly bean game called Scallywag, actually, <laughs> uh, bef before you pitched your separate game called Scallywags. And the third thing was that Nate submitted a pitch about a spaceship with a rotating crew. I've played that game. I've literally played that prototype. I completely forgot about it during recording. And then when we were listening back, I was like, oh, that sounds exactly like that game I played by Nate. Wait a second. Probably the same game. <laughs> so I just wanted to flag that. That was all my follow-up. Just a few little uh, snafus that I said. Let's jump back into defining game terminology. Let's not, because I have follow-up from last episode. Oh, oh, I thought I asked you and you said no. <laughs> Maybe I said no, but the reason why is because I didn't have follow-up. I had follow-up for our fun question. You asked Get me to watch Coherence. And little did you know, one minute before we started recording, I finished watching Coherence. So <laughs> Peter said that uh, he didn't want to give anything away. It's best to go in blind. And wanted to see if I agreed and if you should all go watch Coherence without saying anything about it. <laughs> I agree, it's good. You should go watch it. I'm not going to say anything more. Maybe we'll chat about it post-credits if we have a minute, but... Is it better not knowing anything, though? That's the real question. Like, do you think you would have enjoyed it more knowing the concept? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I want to go into this too much, except maybe post-credits or whatever, but I've got a very predictive mind, and so the movie wasn't as good for me as I could imagine it being for other people. But as much as you can, absolutely go. Definitely the most enjoyable way to, to watch it. Such a good movie. Uh, I did not watch Noah, but it's on my list. And I found where to stream it, and I just haven't had a chance to. <laughs> That's fine. I'll mine till last minute, so I can't uh, chastise you too much. <laughs> All right. <laughs> into the episode. So let's define some terms. Are you familiar with the term aesthetic referring to something other than just visual? Uh, yeah, my understanding is that aesthetic sort of means... Uh... 
like the tone or the vibe, like the aesthetic of a piece is more than just what you see. It's about the feeling of it. I, I guess feeling would be the term, but not, not literally yeah. one of the five senses feelings, but like how it makes you feel. That's pretty good. Yeah. So this is from, I, I heard about this on extra credits and then I checked out the research paper that they based this on. I'll put a link in the show notes. The original paper was mechanics, dynamics, aesthetics. So Extra Credits is a YouTube series on video game design, but a lot of their topics are very broad and also apply to uh, to board games and any type of game design. And they cover all sorts of topics from every end of the spectrum. Really good series. I highly recommend it. Like I said, we'll, we'll put in the show notes. So a mechanic, I feel like we don't need to define it, but I'm going to anyway, is simply anything in the game that has gameplay ramifications. If drawing cards could be a mechanic, playing cards is a mechanic, rolling dice is a mechanic. They're basically- so very rarely sneezing while you play is a mechanic, <laughs> but if sneezing has an actual impact on the game, like it wouldn't say Meow, one of the Jelly Bean games, then it would be a mechanic. Yes, very, very uh, pedantic and accurate. <laughs> and not pedantic. I'm, 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 I was giving an example of something that's not typically a mechanic, yeah. just to counter all the things that are. I just meant uh, giving an example of when sneezing would be a mechanic. That's all I meant. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was pedantic. Correct. Yes. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to. Um, I don't want to follow up next time and be like, actually. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, you're being pedantic. About the thing I called you for being pedantic. <laughs> so a dynamic is something that comes as a result of different mechanics being put together. So if you could imagine placing a worker on a spot gets you a resource. That particular interaction of if something gets placed on the spot and I am placing a worker, that would be a very rudimentary example of a dynamic. And the dynamics can feel very different in very different games. You know, if you have a dice rolling mechanic, right? You could do that in a, a million, million different ways and even have the same outcome. But if you frame it a bit differently, we talked about last episode it could have a very different feeling dynamic and an aesthetic is one step past that where it's the general feel of the game that you are playing and we're going to go into a lot more detail later but that's a quick and dirty explanation yeah aesthetic is something that i'm focusing a lot on the game i'm designing right now called providence providence is a worker placement time travel city building game in which you build the city of providence over three eras like the 1700s 1800s 1900s and I'm co-designing this with Alex Cutler. He is very, very focused on aesthetics. So it's interesting for me because I'm thinking about aesthetic in a way I never have before. And every time we add a mechanic, every time we add a new thing to the board, every time we pick out an icon, he's very focused on how it makes you feel, on the aesthetic of the game, which is not something I typically focus on until relatively late in production. So that's something that's very much on my mind at the moment. So this is uh, a very popular term, analysis paralysis. This is, AP. This is what happens when you have too much cognitive load for a player to be able to handle. They have so many different choices, and either they will decide what to do randomly, or they're going to try and think through every possible permutation, every possible move. Some people, this is just how they're wired. They will refuse to take a move unless they know exactly what the best move is. A friend of mine was talking to me about someone that they knew, and the person would literally sit there calculating for an hour, a literal full hour, what to do on their turn when it was clear it was literally <laughs> impossible for them to win from their position just because they wanted to play properly. These are just different personality types, and there's ways to mitigate that. Go into all this later. But I think your friend is the reason they have clocks in chess tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but we'll, we'll, we'll let you go with that one. <laughs> Another term that's very common in gamer circles is kingmaking. Do you want to go over kingmaking? Yeah, kingmaking is a really interesting uh, dynamic, if you will, where <laughs> let, let's say I, AJ, and Alex are all playing a game and Alex can't win. He's just in a position where he can't possibly win. However, he still has to play the game. He still has turns coming up, he still has to make choices. And he realizes that if he makes one choice, it will essentially give the victory to me. If he makes a different choice, it'll give the victory to AJ. That's a very, very bare bones example of kingmaking, where someone who can't win themselves can still determine who wins. They can't be the king, but they can make the king. A really interesting example of this is the chip-taking game in Richard Garfield's Characteristics of Games. 
Sorry, oh, it has other authors too. I don't remember who they are because I'm not Richard Garfield. So very sorry. I'll put a link in the show notes. But the ch- the chip taking game is literally. I have three chips. Peter has three chips. Person C has three chips. Each turn, pick someone. They lose a chip. Last person with chips is out. That's that's the cleanest possible way to think about king making. And a lot of more complex games boil down to these game theory games. I guess I'll get to game theory in a second. Get get down to these game theory games where you functionally have all these different systems and mechanics and dynamics going on, but it doesn't matter because the the game will always boil down to this one thing. Munchkin has this exact problem. Have you ever played Munchkin and seen the person who goes for that last level to, to get to victory win? No, of course not. Every time they're about to win, everyone dogpiles on them and prevents them from doing it until either everyone is exhausted of resources and can't do anything, or someone says, you know what, I'll just I'll just let you. Munchkin is, is a very popular game, Steve Jackson game, very mass market game. And Munchkin is interesting because it almost uses kingmaking as its central mechanism to the point where it's not even kingmaking anymore. Because the aim of the game is to get to the 13th level or something like that. And as soon as anyone is near the 13th level, everyone will just abandon what they're doing and stop them from winning, even at the expense of your own victory and stop them from winning, which then allows someone else to get up to the 12th level. And then everyone does the same thing until everyone's exhausted and someone wins. So it's sort of like kingmaking taken to the extreme to the point where that is the game. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. So the next one is uh, alpha gamer, sock puppet quarterbacking there's a lot of different terms they all mean the same thing there's a subtle distinction to make between giving someone strategic advice saying you might not want to end your turn right there because then all the enemies are going to attack you you're the closest one to all of them and saying no no no, don't move there you want to move exactly here and then play this card and then do all this stuff it it's something we'll go into more in, in future episodes as to how to solve it and how much of it needs solving I typically think that people overblow how big of an issue it is. Often it's more of a game group issue than a game design issue, but there are game design aspects that you can use to... uh, Yeah, the most common thing people do is give players hidden information, so you literally can't take my turn for me, which then some people who really like cooperative games resent because they're like, well, I want to see every every option on the table. Why wouldn't we not just play face up? (laughs) And one thing to note is that the most common reason that this happens is you're playing on a difficulty mode that's challenging, and you're playing with people of significantly different skill levels. My friends and I will constantly go back and forth and alpha game and be like, you should definitely go here and take this exact action because of this. Because we're all high-level players, not to brag, but you know, we, we play a lot of games. We've played you know, dozens of games of Pandemic. When we sit down to play Pandemic, we're all playing at a very high level, which means I can tell my friend, you should do all these things. And he can retort and say, I thought about that. The reason why I'm not is all these reasons. And functionally, it's like it's like a group puzzle that we're trying to solve. And at that yeah. point, it no longer matters that there's individual turns. It's a puzzle we're all just sitting down to solve, like it's an escape room or something like that. The worst is when you find an alpha player or a quarterbacker in a competitive game. <laughs> and you're like, no, let, let, let the person win or lose on their own terms. Don't take every turn for every player. Ridiculous. What's next on the list? Next is metagaming. This is a really broad term that has a lot of different... So meta as a prefix literally means like about itself. So metagaming is gaming that is about gaming. So it's, uh, you know, the game above the game. So meta text is text about text. A meta video is a video about a video. When something is meta, it generally is referring to itself. So a metagame is when you're playing a game at a whole different level about playing games, essentially. (laughs) Let's say that you're playing a game of Magic the Gathering, and there's all these deck lists out there, and you know that the best deck list is deck A. It's just unquestionably the best deck. But deck B, while being worse against every single other deck than deck A, is specifically really good at beating deck A. Well, if you expect everyone to play deck A, the quote-unquote best deck, then the best deck is deck B. It's an example of competitive or strategic metagaming. If I'm playing chess against AJ and I know that he always uses a very good opener, he always uses the exact same opener, I might pick a substandard opener, one that's just a flat out worse opener, just because I know he hasn't studied it and researched it and I can throw him off his game. So I'm playing the game of playing AJ instead of playing chess. <laughs> yes. And in a completely different meaning, metagame can refer to things like deciding who wins based off of non-game related things. We already mentioned king making. Imagine king making 
because you know your your girlfriend is the person that you want to win <laughs> or because Brent backstabbed you last game <laughs> and now you want revenge for what he did suck right? it Brent <laughs> indeed <laughs> and so and then and then the, the third usage would be a game that is game themed so a, a game about making a board game company could be considered a meta game or a game about designing a game I'd actually say there's another one. This is why I say there's there's so many different uses of this term. I would say using mechanics in the game in extremely perverse ways or rules lawyering could be considered metagaming. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. So as an example, one of my favorite old games... <laughs> if someone asks you what your favorite fictional book is, and you're like, well... <laughs> <laughs> so one of, um, one of my favorite old games is Descent First Edition. And that game had a lot of rough edges, but because of that, it had a lot of really interesting amazing interactions that you could take advantage of if you were so inclined as an example you spend a a fatigue token to take any action that you could normally spend one movement point on so if it takes you one movement to drink a potion you can spend a fatigue for that so if you have a bunch of potions that restore fatigue you can use a fatigue (laughs) poker and you and you loop together a million extra actions right but then there's other stranger weirder things my favorite example is you've got one character that is immune to melee damage and you have in the game you attack spaces not enemies because some enemies take up multiple spaces and if you can see one space then you can see the the monster and there's other reasons for that as well but those are the two important things for this example when you attack something you attack that space with all of its effects so, for instance, if I were to attack my character that's immune to damage with my melee character, and that melee character has an ability that when I attack a space, I push that character back, I just turned attacking <laughs> my own character into a way to move around the board more effectively. <laughs> there were all sorts of bizarre little things like that that you could get away with in that game. And that's, I think, another great example of, of metagaming. If you ever hear, hear the phrase the meta, then people are referring to metagaming. So, you know, the, the Magic the Gathering meta is not individual games, but the game that has sprung up on the next level up. It's it's the game of which deck do I choose, such as in AJ's AB deck example earlier. Similar to kingmaking that we mentioned is janitor, or there's a few other terms, vulture, stuff like that. And this is one of your favorite terms, so you want to give us this one? So uh, t- to Janet is <laughs> is, is the, the verb form. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I love it. If, if, if you're a janitor or a vulture, it means that you've basically swooped in and let, let's say, you know, AJ and his wife were playing a game and, and their characters had a huge fight. They were both low on hit points, but neither of them were, were passed out. I could come in and very easily clean up. I could, you know, finish the job for both of them. Or in a city building game, maybe, um, maybe Carcassonne, maybe... AJ has built this massive, massive city and he just needs to cap it off. And I come in and I cap it off and, you know, get the points for myself. One distinction I want to make is between tactics and strategy. I see people confuse them constantly. So to to be perfectly clear here, tactics are short-term decisions. Strategies are long-term decisions. That's the cleanest break you can make. You can argue that if you make a single different move, from your strategy, then now you've developed a different strategy. But I think the the easiest way to grok this is to say that you might have a strategy over multiple turns or of the whole game, how you're going to succeed, but the things that you weren't expecting cause you to have to change your strategy. And those are tactics. You make tactical decisions as a response to, uh, to improperly assumed information. Tactics also has a very different meaning in board games, which is uh, generally miniatures-based fighting games. Games in which the the tactical maneuvering and the positioning is really important. And they're called tactics games because generally you're making many, many short-term decisions. Again, you might have a strategy. In almost every game, you'll have both tactics and a strategy. But tactics games are so named because so much can differ from turn to turn that you really have to focus on playing tactically. In hex or or square-based small miniatures combat games. And I, I would argue that a lot of uh, those fast-paced card battling games are also tactics games in that broad sense. And if you say strategy yeah. game, then we're thinking like Twilight Imperium or a longer, 
more expansive game that has a lot more going on in it. A game where the main decision you make is going to be like, okay, how am I going to end this game? Like, what's my long-term plan? And then you can generally have a few different ways of achieving it in the short term, but the main decision you're making is long-term, whereas in a tactics game, the main, the, the most important decision is what am I doing this turn instead of what am I doing in, in 20 turns from now? Right. The big thing that changes whether you're talking tactics or strategy is something called the information horizon. And the information horizon is basically how far out can you accurately see what's going to happen. And some games have a very short information horizon, like Flux. You will not know between turns what the game is going to look like in Flux. And some games are very stable. Yahtzee has an insanely close information horizon. Uh, chess, for example, the only thing that stops you from making choices is your opponent's uh, turns. You know, theoretically, you map out an entire game of chess, except no one can do that because the decision tree just goes off the rails. The decision tree is, is it's very literal. Uh, no, it's not literally a tree. Um, it's it's a basically you could map out a graph. So in scissors, paper, rock, there's three prongs. Are you going to choose scissors, paper, or rock? In chess, the decision tree is very complex right from the start. There's eight pawns. You can move either one or two spaces plus the two knights that you can move to one of two different spots. So chess right from turn one has 20 different prongs on its decision tree. And then the next layer down is more than that and more than that and more than that. I think 20 time, I think twenty turns into a game of chess, you're playing a game that no one has ever played before. So a decision tree is a really important concept to understand because if you want to reduce analysis paralysis, which we discussed earlier, and mental, mental load? What cognitive load. And cognitive load, one way to do it is to just trim your decision tree. Trim it, trim it, trim it. And you'll see actually increasingly, I think, these days, complex games have very limited decision trees. Uh, Scythe is a really good example. Every turn in Scythe, you're going to choose one of three spots to go. Now, from there, the decision tree branches a bit, but that first decision tree is really clear. It's this one, this one, or this one, and then everything from there, um, you know, branches in a very intuitive way. It's very important to have a decision tree that starts small and branches out as time goes on because it helps with on-ramping and it helps the game escalate as well. And because if you start with too many things in play, you essentially increase dramatically the the difficulty of parsing a positional heuristic for yourself. It's very hard to see what the situation actually is. If you want an example of this, try to think of a game that you know that's like an hour or two long and sit down to a game that's already in progress and try and give someone strategic advice as to like what they should be doing. <laughs> or, or if you've ever seen someone try and take over for somebody else during a long game. It's a nightmare because everybody else has all this pre-built information that they've slowly been adding pieces and pieces to the game as time goes on. Win condition. So this one's pretty self-explanatory. A win condition is how you win the game. But there's a number of different terms related to win conditions, different types of win conditions that I'd like to define. Victory point are another pretty clear one. You reach X threshold of victory points and you win. It's a race. Or if you... Do we have to define victory points? I feel like we don't have to define Yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. This is another sentence. Sure. A victory point is simply something that directly contributes to you winning the game. And you'll earn them over the course of the game for different actions. And that will direct your attention through the game. So there's two ways that victory points can be used to win you the game. Either you accumulate X amount of victory points and you will win. Those are referred to as races. Or if it's a certain number of rounds or time in some... There's some other condition to end the game. Right. And then at that point, you calculate who has the most victory points, and that player will win. In addition to, to victory points, there's a number of different other ways that you can end the game. Typically, though, it comes down to a set amount of x resource running out or x rounds running out that's the most common thing or if you deal x damage to a person a lot of these you can argue are victory points in one way or another Abs uh, victory points are just very abstracted out versions of these things but two sort of subsets that can fall into a lot of these different categories that i want to talk about are backdoor win conditions which is it's a win condition but it's not how you're typically expected to win. This is also known as shooting the moon. Yeah. It would be a subset of backdoor win conditions. Yes, exactly. So shooting the moon is basically you take a long shot 
for it's very low chance of success, but it's possible. And that's one way to keep people invested in the game that they might otherwise think there's no chance of me winning the game. Do you want to give a good example of that? Yeah, so I, th- I think the term, I, I've heard it in uh, the game Hearts. The yeah. aim of the game Hearts is to get rid of hearts from your hand. The fewer hearts, you know, every, every, it's like golf. The more points you have, the worse you're doing. So every heart that you get is negative points. However, if you can get all the hearts, or if you can get a full hand of hearts, then it, they all cancel each other out and you go back to zero. So if you have, you know, five cards and that's five points, but if you have 10 cards and that goes back to zero points, it's a really nifty way of... Uh, a really nifty way of being like, okay, I'm losing now, but if I can lose really hardcore, then I'll win. <laughs> Another trick-taking game that falls into that category is Indulgence, where they've got these different uh, conditions that, you've, that you're trying to follow, these different edicts, and each time you don't follow them, you have to pay the person that enacted the edict. But if you, think, if you look at your hand and you're like, there's no way, I'm going to have to pay out of the nose, you may as well try to shoot the moon, and if you do then you're going to get paid out by everybody else. But that means everyone else is working against you, which really raises the stakes and makes it really exciting, <laughs> super fun. But then they have this thing where instead of choosing an edict, you put in a whole bunch of edicts, everyone that you were choosing from. And if you shoot the moon on that one, you, you just stop playing, you win, <laughs> which is super fun, super exciting. There's one time I was playing and my dad, uh, I explained the rules and he was like, there's no way you can do that though that's not like a thing that can happen immediately i just flipped the thing i was like nope we're doing it shooting the moon and i got it and it was a highlight of my gaming career the character van helsing in dracula's feast new blood is a bit like that the aim of dracula's feast is to identify everyone at the party so if you can say aj you're dracula and sarah was the zombie and and david was the ghost and if i get them all right i win so you want to get all yes responses Van Helsing wants to get all no responses. If she gets every no and then she can find Dracula, she wins. It's like a, a weird alternate victory condition, which is a little shoot the moony. That's cute. Shoot the moon is especially useful when you have a runaway leader problem. Runaway leader Ooh, yes. is where someone's gone so far ahead in the game that everyone else thinks that they just cannot possibly catch up to that person. Yeah, yeah. So it comes obviously from racing, where you know there's one there's the the leader has run away ahead of the pack so far that everyone else is like, oh great, we might as well uh, just wait for him to have a nap, and then while he's napping, we'll slowly trudge in front of him because slow and steady wins the race. And there's a lot of different ways that you can counteract this, which are all terms that we're going to go into right now and go into more depth again later. One of the ways, the most most commonly thought way, is a catch up mechanic. A catch up mechanic does exactly what it says. Also it, called a blue shell mechanic. Yes. Uh, named after the uh, titular blue shell from Mario, where it will automatically hit the person <laughs> in first place. Um, typically, these things, if players hate them. The more, Especially the more competitive players are, the more they'll hate catch-up mechanics if they see them. And the less competitive they are, the, the better they are typically. The single best catch-up mechanism I've ever seen is in Quacks of Quedlingburg, which is A, a game I really love, B, not the most hardcore game, so I can see why uh, it doesn't bother people. But along the scoreboard, there's all these rat tails, and at the start of every round, you count the number of rat tails between your score and this player in the lead, and you just get that many, like, basically bonus bits in your potion to start with. It's such a clever little mechanic, and it, it doesn't directly translate into points, but it does give you a bit of an advantage... And it scales so that, you know, everyone compares themselves to the leader. So the leader never gets anything and everyone else, you know, if there's two players neck to neck and you're away at the bottom of the scoreboard, you'll get a bunch. And it's a good way of letting you catch up without um, feeling cheap. I don't know. It's really effective in that game. It's a great mechanism. I think part of the reason why it feels so good in that game, as opposed to other games that I've seen them in, is because in Quacks, if you are getting that catch-up mechanic, it means that you busted. It means you had some really bad turns. And people feel bad for, for if you have a bad yeah. turn. It's not like you're going to say, oh, wow, you got a couple extra you know, uh, points or whatever um, and, and be upset about it. They're going to be like, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're all still having fun here and you're not feeling... <laughs> so would you consider a slowdown mechanism to be a... Um, or a drag mechanism to be a catch-up mechanism? I refer to that as headwind, and I would say no. I would say it's, uh, I would say it's generally speaking, quite different. Because a headwind mechanic basically slows you down as you advance. And I'll give you an example as for 
a time that I think it is a catch-up mechanic, and I'll give you an example for a time that it's not. In Twilight Imperium, they have different objectives. And one of the objectives is pay 10 resources. You don't get anything for it, you just get the victory point. Which means, if I spend the 10 resources right now, then I don't have 10 resources to build up my infrastructure. That's slowing me down significantly. The reason why that is a catch-up mechanic, as opposed to just pure headwind to slow down everyone, is because not everyone has to complete that objective. And not everyone has to complete that objective right now. In, say, Dominion, this is a good example. In Dominion, everyone gets slowed down by buying point cards that clog up their deck. But everyone has to do that. If everyone has to do this in order to advance, that's not really a catch-up mechanic. It's just a thing everybody has to do. You'll see this in a more heavy example in some Euros where there, there was one I played that was particularly egregious. It was like each point you get, you move up the point track, except if you get to a certain part, point, then it takes two victory points to move up, up one step. <laughs> one. And that's just so heavy handed, so inorganic. It feels terrible to do, and it doesn't actually help people catch up. But what because it, once by the time anyone else gets there, they have to do the exact same thing, right? But that's not an example of a catch up mechanic, that's an example of an obfuscation mechanic. Obfuscation mechanics are where you hide the positional heuristic from the players so they don't actually understand where they are in the pack. So, so a, a good example of this is in a genre that I'll define quickly point salad games. In point salad games, almost any actions that you take are going to result in you getting some amount of point. So a monkey playing this game would end with a certain amount of points. You know, it's impossible not to end with at least an okay looking score. The skilled players squeeze out that little bit of extra points out of the system. But what that means is at the end of the game, one player who doesn't know what they were doing and played like a monkey ended with 120 points and the super amazing <laughs> player ended with 150. That feels really close. So even though it wasn't even close at all, that was obfuscated from the players. Now, obviously, in point salads, that's more of an end game scoring thing to protect players' egos. And in the headwind example, the obfuscation is to keep players invested in the game, but they're both from the same branch. It's impossible to underestimate how important feelings are. In that example you gave, really, one player has zero points and one player has 30 points. If no matter what you do, you're always going to get 120 points. And really, the, the game is getting those extra 30, then the score is essentially zero to 30. But if I end a game and say, hey, I got 30 points, you got zero, you're going to be like, oh, cool, I never want to play this game or any game ever again. Thank you, bye forever. Whereas by making it 120 and 150, it feels really good. Now, AJ, you did in fact say the magic word, the word that we've avoided for two episodes, and so now you do have to define it. You said Euro. Ah, shoot. All right, all right. <laughs> okay, where do we get? So I think that it makes the most sense to start the etymology of the word and just literally go back. Why do we use this word? So back... in, the, in the 1200s, the, uh, <laughs> the famous scholar. <laughs> so start of this as a board game term came from sort of post-war boomer era game design and what happened was in the states where you know they won the war they were very excited to <laughs> wait a second are you saying europe lost the war <laughs> well what i'm saying is europe was ravaged by war it wasn't a pleasant victory and and uh germany lost and most game designs from europe come from germany germany is the <laughs> world Gotcha. You, you synecdochied Germany into all of Europe. And I was like, oh man, any foreign listeners are going to have objections to this. <laughs> Thank you for that. And so post-World War II in that era, there was a lot of war games. That's a whole genre. I'm not even going to bother. Yeah, war games are basically, um, if you've ever seen that moment in a film where like the general's plotting out what to do and he has all these figures and he like pushes them with one of those stick things and like, it's basically that but gamified. So there's all kinds of different different genres. I discovered my uncle, who I would never have guessed has ever played a board game in his life, is a heavy, heavy war gamer. It's almost its own distinct category separate from board games. But um, it, they're, they're generally very dry, very long, and very, very simulation-y. They're all about like simulating war in different ways. And like sometimes they simulate individual soldiers in a war, very high randomness. And yeah, they're, they're own, they're own, they are their own world, basically. <laughs> So we have two different parts of the world, and one is very enthusiastic about war. 
and in Germany, they were obviously trying to think about things that weren't related to war. They were they were done with that. And so in Europe, the focus was on non-confrontational games, on games that didn't have a lot of aggressive behaviors taken by the players towards one another. They picked a lot more uh, colonization themes. Take a guess why. And, you know, a lot of <laughs> resource management, a lot of mathematical and 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 uh, manipulation of systems that's the clever term i used earlier i'm using a bit more sloppily now but they they designed <laughs> a lot of systems that are fun to tinker with and games that would be fun to play with families all together without causing conflict or trouble and the other end of the spectrum is what's lovingly referred to as a mara trash that's because game design in the states took a very different direction they focused a lot more on theme. They had a lot more dice. They used a lot more randomness. And you can see that in designs even up to today. You know, the quintessential examples would be something like Risk or Monopoly in in, uh, in uh, the Ameritrash sort of general spectrum. Although I believe um, Monopoly was actually designed by a European, but I'm not going to get into too much here. And Was it? I didn't know that. I believe so, yeah. Because it was originally the Landlord's game, and then that got stolen by... I believe it was... A yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. I knew about the Landlords game. I didn't know that it was of European origins. Yeah, it was a socialist that made it. They were trying to show how awful capitalism is by making a horrible, unfun game. <laughs> and in my opinion, they succeeded. <laughs> uh, that's the two sides of the spectrum. To be perfectly honest, I think that the term Ameritrash is almost entirely useless. I will almost never be using that. The only reason I used it earlier to talk about Kingdom Death Monster is because it is such a perfect example of incredibly thematic, incredibly random... <laughs> And I, I really do not expect to use that term. I, I think it's not useful. Euro, I think, is, is a really broad animal because non-confrontational player interaction was a pillar of Euro design. But more recently, there's a lot of games that are much meaner that are Euro designs. You know, arguably Artemis Project is a super mean Euro design. The Estates is the meanest game I've ever played in my life. And it's just an auction game, right? And so I think that these terms are muddying enough that they're okay as shorthand, but you really need to be careful with how you use them. I had an interesting conversation with my friends the other day, my board game friends, about sci-fi and fantasy and like how fruitless it is to try to define those terms because any definition you use, you can find stuff from the other genre that meshes into them. And so we started talking about this idea of genre markers. So just like there's gender markers, like trying to define what is a woman is a controversial topic that we're not going to get into on this podcast but the generally accepted standard now is to instead of trying to say like here is exactly what makes something feminine is to say here are some markers and if you think of it as a spectrum then the more of these markers it has the further up one of the spectrum it is so similarly with euros rather than try to say here is what a euro is because you'll always find exceptions it's a genre i try to find genre markers so one of them is as you said um non-confrontational system-based uh low post low post decision randomness so you know it, it just input output randomness by itself is a spectrum where most euros will do something random that make you choose from that whereas a lot you know Maritrash by comparison is much more likely to be like hey i want to do this does it work yes no roll a die um and so yeah what, what, would, you, what would you say are some good genre markers for euros and and quote unquote Maritrash? for Maritrash, high randomness Input or output, but definitely output randomness is more of a is a much stronger market for it. Very strong thematically is is uh, going to be something where as soon as where you're going to sit down because of the the theme of the game, not because of the mechanisms. In a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, the mechanics won't even be that strong, and you won't even notice it because well, that's how good the theme is. In a lot of cases, one big one for me is that euros will typically use a lot of iconography and icons because Obviously, in Europe, they speak many more languages, whereas Ameritrash games, by comparison, will have walls of text. I would say that's a really key difference between them. Yeah, and Ameritrash have a lot more um, player powers. That's a much more common Ameritrash thing, for sure. Yeah, asymmetry, mm -hmm. yeah. Typically, the asymmetry in Euro games is very minor and doesn't particularly affect how things go and comes more through play than from setup. The setup of Ameritrash games are typically shorter, I would say. I think often in Ameritrash, or often in Euro games, there's a lot of bits. It's very bitty, like you said before. 
and uh, and yeah, Bitsy, thank you. Uh, this is another older one, but production values used to be a thing that European oh, games. Oh yeah, yeah. But now it's completely inverted. Now Euro games are typically the leaders. Minis aside, they are the leaders in the field. And even when there are minis, <laughs> they'll have anachrony. You know, one of the best in class. I would say that um, again, just very broad terms, genre markers. Euro games are about building stuff. Ameritrash games are about destroying or fighting stuff. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I think it's very valuable to think about genres the way you do. I've been thinking a lot about genres lately, and at some point, maybe we'll talk about the strawberry scale that I'm working on. But the way that I was thinking about them was having different attributes and having sort of like a sliding scale of these different attributes and having that be the way that you define genres as opposed to the traditional method, which is hit or miss at best. And uh, I like the marker one, though. That one, that makes a lot of sense. Is you have kind of like a mind map or, or uh, yeah, like a, like a spectrum where it's like... Yeah. And spectrums don't have to be one dimension. They can, they can go, you know, multiple dimensions. Yeah, I was talking to my friend Michael Murray about uh, the Strawberry Skill a while ago, and he was mentioning something akin to the markers. Maybe we should talk to him and, and see if we can get something like that up on the show. But I think that's enough for now. I think we can maybe come back to genres again at a later time. Yeah. One thing I just want to go back to... Oh, uh, actually, sorry. Uh, before we move on from Euro and Ameritrash, we should talk about Hybrid, which is uh, <laughs> exactly what it says on the box, which is a game that draws a lot from Ameritrash and draws a lot from Euros. And you can pretty easily make the case that the vast majority of games these days are hybrids. They used to be much more segregated. Nowadays, they're, they're blending more and more as the hobby expands and people from different countries work together. But um, some people will, will still use the word hybrid, and so it's useful to know what that means. Yep. One thing I want to jump back to for a second with regards to catch-up mechanics and stuff is that if you can have a catch-up mechanic that feels organic and that feels like it's not a catch-up mechanic, that is is where the money is because then you get all the benefits without any of the cost. So a good example of this is in my favorite game, Sakura Arms. If you take damage, the life that you lose, you take those life tokens and you push them over into your mana and now that becomes mana. So the more damage you take, the more you can play your super moves and stuff like that. In Blood Rage, if you play a combat card and you win, you lose that combat card. And if you lose... And everyone else gets theirs back. Exactly. So let's say that you lost your combat. Well, that's fine. You used your powerful combat card and you still didn't... Again, you actually get something out of Very, very clean examples of very subtle catch-up mechanics, I think. The Interestingly, the coupling mechanism I mentioned from Caverna head-to-head, or ca- Cave cave versus cave whatever it's called um it's it's a very subtle catch-up mechanic if i'm expanding my cavern by digging out then i'm making more stuff available for everyone now arguably by making it available for me as well it's not that much of a catch-up mechanism but even just like i dig on my turn on your turn you can buy that before i get a chance to it's it's a very 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 nuanced uh catch-up mechanism and the opposite of that is a snowball mechanic where it this can also be thought of as a as a feedback so the more something happens, the more that thing happens again. In Risk, the more you take territory, the more resources you get, which lets you take more territory, right? And a lot of times it's thought of as a very... Well, actually, oh, yeah. it's interesting because Risk, yes, on one hand, the more you expand, the more stuff you get, but also the more land you have to defend. So it's right. kind of, uh, you know, Risk is not the best balanced game in the world, but that is an interesting example where it's got kind of both things happening at once. <laughs> it's a good point. It's a good point. It makes more sense, I guess, if you think of like stock games, right? Where it's like the value of the stock goes up yeah. and uh, that sort of thing. A lot of times these get thought of as a negative thing. Rich get richer is typically a problem because it runs to it. Typically, the rich get richer snowball problem is a problem because it leads to a runaway leader. And that's why we have catch-up mechanics and obfuscation mechanics and all that sort of stuff. But the one time where it's actually useful is when the game is functionally over and you just need to close it out. So similarly to how a catch-up mechanic makes someone feel like they can get back into the game, the snowball takes the opposite approach. It says, you know what? The game's basically over. It's just over. Let's just stop. My favorite example of this <laughs> is Glory to Rome. So I don't know if you play Glory to Rome. It is bananas. <laughs> it's child cutic, right? Yeah. So Yeah, I'm not surprised. All, all of his games are bananas in different ways. <laughs> yeah, so his design philosophy is if everything's broken, then nothing's broken. (laughs) The way that folds into this discussion 
is let's say I just got a really powerful combo going. Well, if I if I get a crazy good combo in Glory to Rome, that means that I will end the game from one of the end immediately. The first time I played it, I had uh, a card that got me a bunch of extra uh, spaces for workers. I'm, I'm dramatically oversimplifying things for the sake of this conversation. Got a bunch more spaces for workers. And then I had a thing that filled up all those spaces just automatically. And each one of those basically means it's an extra action every time anyone takes that action. So I went from doing not that much to all of a sudden, every turn, I get five turns, basically. <laughs> and let me tell you, it did not take long for the game to end after that. It was over the next round or maybe the round after that. And typically that's what happens. The, the sign of the win condition is someone says, hey guys, check this out. You see it, you're like, wow, that's an amazing thing you just pulled off. And they get to like crank it once and show it off, and then it's over. And it, it feels really good. <laughs> One example I always think of is Terraforming Mars. I've only played that once, and it was five years ago now, gosh. And in that game, the way I recall is that how many victory points you have determines your income. So the more you are winning, the more money you make, and the more you can win, which is the more money you make. It's a really interesting uh, central mechanism. One term I want to get to is real time. Real time is a thing that if you come from a video game background, it's very strange because in video games, it's standard to be real time. Turn-based is how you differentiate something. And in board games, it's the opposite. Everything is standardly a turn-based game unless it is a real time. Real time game simply means that there is some timed element to the play. Maybe it's in the form of sand timers for actions. Maybe it's in the form of each round, you only have so many minutes to negotiate. Maybe it's that the whole game will be over in five minutes, no matter what. I'll give you an example of a real-time game that everyone knows. Hungry Hungry Hippos. <laughs> yes. That's all. <laughs> real-time can come in a few different forms. You can have a real-time negotiation phase where you turn on a clock and you can chat for that long, or you can have the entire game be real-time, or Snap, I guess, is another real-time game. <laughs> Hidden rules slash social deduction. So a social deduction game is a game where you are trying to figure something out, some piece of information. And the way that you do it isn't by logically deducing it from pieces on the board. It's by reading the other players. Arguably, bluffing games are an offshoot of this. But the reason why hidden rules is, is a term is because typically what you'll have is there's one person who is hidden. who do not know that they are the spy, but they are the spy. They know that they're the spy. And they're trying to do something sneaky as the spy, and we're all trying to suss them out. That's by far the most common type of a social deduction game. Yeah, uh, the the famous example is The Resistance or Mafia or Werewolf. There's a few different names for different versions of it. And in the example you gave, one player is the spy, and so you're watching your friends to see who's acting suspiciously. In Mafia Werewolf The Resistance, there is a team of spies... And what you are trying to do is watch how people are socializing. That's, I think, where the term comes from, social deduction. You're watching how they interact with each other, which is what socializing is. And so it's deduction of how people interact. It's such, it's, it's a genre I'm truly fascinated by. I've designed so much stuff in this space. I cannot wait to play in human conditions with you. <laughs> <laughs> I've done enough with that. So Actually, no, let, let me say something else. Um, Hidden role can also be separate to social deductions. So, for example, there's a famous game called Lords of Waterdeep, which is a worker placement game. In Lords of Waterdeep, everyone has a hidden role that gives you extra victory points for doing a certain thing. So my role might be I'm the master of thieves or whatever, and I get an extra point for every thief mission I complete. Yours is you're the master of buildings, and you get an extra point for every building that you complete. You have a role that is hidden, but it's not a game about socially deducing so they are they are distinct but they're often related that's a hidden objective not a hidden role isn't it i, I don't know i, was, I think I'd, I'd classify that as a hidden role okay i wouldn't i would say that it's just an objective that you have that people yeah interesting do. it doesn't like i'm trying to think yeah i mean it, it is a hidden objective i always think of those as roles though because like you're taking a different role in the game no i guess that's a good point in uh in mafia if you have a um a regular person card Essentially, that's an objective. You're saying you are trying to drive. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what the differentiation is. I'm trying. To, I'm trying to think if there are any games, and then and <laughs> if if you if any listeners know it, write in and let us know. If there are any games where you have a hidden role that is not an objective, so like you have maybe a special power or something that does not directly tie to how you win the game, that would be interesting to find out. There's some that do both. So like in Bang, there's an expansion that has a 
a power associated with your oh oh um sorry fin- finish the thought but i got one yeah go, go on. uh one night ultimate werewolf would be an example where most players share a win condition but even on the team sharing win conditions people have different roles so there's a eyes closed phase where we say everyone close your eyes now this role open your eyes and you get to do something now that might not affect your win condition at all you might win the same way as almost every other player but it is still a secret thing that you are doing it's a role in the game that's not just an objective Right, I guess they have the Mafia slash Werewolf too, the doctor, policeman roles or whatever. Yeah. The psychic, yeah. Take that. So I think this is the term that might be misused the absolute most. So I want to be clear about what my definition is for this. Take that is a mechanic where you deliver targeted aggression to another player. And I think that inherent in this definition is that you're doing it out of spite, not out of strategy. <laughs> I, if there's a game where you're able to perform targeted aggression at another player but you're just doing it because it's the move that gets you closer to winning to me that's just not take that to me take that games are games designed around playing cards to just be mean or, or whatever you know yeah i'm not sure i'd agree with you there i think that take that is i, I think you nailed it where you're saying take that as a game where you have targeted aggression and this relates actually to what we we're saying with king making earlier not to say every game with kingmaking is a take that game, but um, the famous, the best-selling line in Jolly Bean Games is the Treasure Hunter series, Scuttle Ninjutsu Brains, and they are uniformly described as take that games. Everyone calls them take that games. But they're not about spite. They're not about being mean. They're about seizing opportunities. So you can take a card from someone else because it's the biggest card on the map, but it's still a take that game. It's still inherently like that. That's what, you know, that is a take that game to the core, I would say. So to you, it's more about the amount of aggression and the amount of targeted aggression as opposed to anything else. So like if I have a game where, like Exploring Kittens, Exploring Kittens, I'm constantly making you do things you don't want to do, protecting against the things that you want to do, and all the game is aggressive player interaction going back and forth. You're making moves that move you towards winning the game, but they're all hyper-aggressive. That's the characteristic, that's the marker we want to go with for that genre. Yeah, so just like we were talking about um, semi-co-op games. Now, you can have a, a semi-co-op is when you have a shared win condition or a shared lose condition. You can have a semi-co-op mechanism in a game. That doesn't make it a semi-co-op game. For me, a semi-co-op game is when the primary mechanism is right. that. So you can have take that elements in any game. Like Monopoly has take that elements, you know? But I wouldn't call Monopoly a take that game. A take that game is when the primary mechanism is that targeted aggression. Right, right. You're on the same page. That makes sense. Push your luck. A push your luck game is just where you do that. You push your luck. You you see how far you can get. And the further you go, the better the rewards, but the greater the risk of failing. <laughs> Almost universally, this means that you play a bunch of small rounds and you bank what you get between rounds so that you get that feeling over and over again. Again, the, the famous example that most people would know is Yahtzee, where you can store a certain number of dice and re-roll the rest, and you're constantly trying to push your luck and, and get the better roll. Next up is trick-taking. You want to cover that one? Yeah, so trick-taking games are card games, almost uniformly, in which you are playing a series of tricks. So a trick is, is generally speaking, when everyone plays a card or everyone plays a number of cards. And then whoever has the best card or whoever does the right combo wins that trick, and that counts as a point. So again, the most famous example would be Bridge. Bridge is a trick-taking game. Everyone who's playing plays a card, and the highest card wins um, they often have Trump suits, which is uh, nothing to do with the former president of the US. It's about a type of card that is special and can beat other cards, even though it's lower in value. Uh, the most famous in Australia is a game called 500. It's actually the national card game of Australia, and no one knows it over here. You all know Euchre, which to me is like the half-witted stepbrother of um, <laughs> 500. Would you say that that defines trick-taking? Yeah, I think... They often have a bidding element, too. I think that's a pretty uh, pretty good definition. A subset of that is ladder climbing. Players play one card or a set of related cards. Subsequently, players must play cards of an equal or higher value of the same set already played. I think that uh, that gets across like how rounds work. You play one or more cards, and there's some defining trait. Maybe it's a set or a run, a set being multiple of the same, a run being in sequential order of number. And you're trying to beat the previous last played one. And sort of where ladder climbing differs a little bit from game to game is in what it exactly means to end the round. This last sentence that I didn't read 
is the last player to successfully play wins the right to start a new round of climbing. And that that changes a lot from ladder climbing game to, to ladder climbing game. In Teach You, it's all about bidding on, you know, if you're going to go out first and that type of thing. In Delt, it's a game where you just don't want to be the last person in the round. And in, uh, what do you call it, Scumbag or whatever? Scumbag, yeah. Scumbag, it works even differently from that, where you, based off of the position that you exit the round, you get a new starting position, you get better cards. No, I, I, I think you're interpreting it differently. Um, what they're saying is once a ladder is complete, whoever plays last on that ladder starts the next ladder, even if it's within the same round. So if I play a 2, you play a 3, I play an 11, oh, 11, <laughs> you know, instead of deck of cards, the 11. If I play a 2, you play a 3, I play a 10, and you're like, oh, I don't want to play anything higher than a 10, I get to play the next card. Right, okay. Even if the round's not finished yet. And typically the aim of this is to get rid of your, get rid of your entire hand. So you want to play the last one so that you can get rid of your low cards, because once you've, you know, once the cards in the middle go above a certain number, you can't beat that. Probably the best known uh, ladder climbing game would be Cheat. Cheat is ladder climbing plus bluffing, where I play, you know, three fours and you say, I've got three fives, but you might not actually have three fives. You might be cheating and I can call cheat and, and call you out. Yep. Do you have that game over here? Yep. Yep. Cheat's, a, cheat's one that I played as a kid. Yeah. Classic uh, ladder climbing game. Yeah. I, I always had that stuck in my head, just the concept that cheating is now part of the rules. And obviously because <laughs> it's not cheating, I, I've, uh, I've had in the back of my head for a long time, just like percolating how to actually just say, listen, however you do it, if you get like this card onto this spot on the table, then, you, then you're allowed to do it. You know, like make it really feel like you can cheat in a variety of different ways. Like hide it under the, your cup. I always get caught up on the idea of like, what if someone just pulls a gun <laughs> and says, I'm going to put this here. And everyone's like, well, the rules don't say you can't do that, I guess. I mean, there's, there's many problems with it. <laughs> it's a fun idea. <laughs> Set collection is one that comes up in almost every... Well, I should say. Set collection is one of the most common mechanics in game. And always as a subset of other mechanics, or as a result of taking other mechanics. Set collection is simply, here's one of a thing. Maybe it's worth points, maybe it's not. But the more of the thing you get, the more points it's worth. Or once you reach this particular grouping, you'll get points. But outside of scoring, it can also be used in a variety of different ways. So if you collect a set of X cards, you can complete X spaces of track in Ticket to Ride. So set collection is just collecting a group of similar cards, essentially. Uh, probably the best known set collection game would be Rummy, I would say. That's almost a pure set collection game. Oh yeah. I've never played. Oh, it's very good. I mean, you know, for a, a game you play with deck cards, solid little game. <laughs> filler game. So filler games are... Would you say it's a derogatory term? Yes. <laughs> or I would say it is often used as a pejorative. Yeah, it's, it's not necessarily because a lot of Jelly Bean games are described as filler games very affectionately. Um, but basically, with a lot of gaming groups, they will play uh, tentpole games, you know, the, the big games. Jamie Stegmaier calls it the meal, not the, not the dessert, not the... How do you call it? Entrees in this country? Appetizer. Not the dessert, not the appetizer. The main meal. So let's say you have a group of friends and you're getting together and you know you're going to play a 60-minute game and then a 90-minute game. A filler game is what you play while people are arriving or between the two games or when everyone's done with the big game and they, you know, still want to hang out but they don't want to get into something big. I would say that every Jelly Bean game is considered a filler game by hardcore gamers. For now. Well, I guess you're, you're doing coffee games. <laughs> <laughs> Engine building. Engine building. Oh, this would be definitely another genre marker for Euros, by the way. Uh, to be engine building or have set collection or a few different other things. An engine builder or an engine building is when you are assembling some kind of system that will pay off later. So I am obsessed with engine building. It's my favorite thing in games. Very, very simple example would be in Risk. The more countries you get, the more troops you get. It's a very, very simple engine. You get more countries, you build more troops, but that that's a very simple example of an engine builder. Anything I missed? No, no, I think that's, I think it's good. Um, uh, I'll, I'll say one thing in engine building is that they'll often have a turning moment or a switch, which is maybe the first half of the game you're using your engine to build resources, and then there's a point where you stop using it to build resources and start printing victory points, whether that's money or, or trying to fulfill goals. But at the start of the game, you might be using your engine to improve your engine, and then at some point you'll stop doing that and start using your engine to get victory points. Yeah, it, it can be used in a lot of 
applications outside of that as well. But I think that that's, you know, 90 plus percent of the use cases is being used to generate resources and eventually generate points for sure. Tableau building, this is kind of an offshoot of, of engine building. Typically this is engine building, but done by having a bunch of cards or tiles or something, something that you're collecting from various mechanics in the game, putting it in front of you, and now you've got your own little system, your own little engine, your own little machine, and you can combo off of those different abilities, or they can they have some sort of intertwining uh, actions that they can do, or even if it's just building up your own personal stockpile of resources, it could be. But one way or another, it's about the building out of your own personal creation. That's the important part of Tableau. Not on a shared board. Mm-hmm. R- Rummy could almost be considered a Tableau builder. Not Maybe not quite, but almost. <laughs> Last one, it's a big one. Politics. So politics is when people disagree on how to live life. and. Uh... <laughs> so politics in game design essentially means whenever there's a three-plus-sided game, and there's conversation about like what the right move is or the king-making situation or anything like that. Basically, it, it's anything that pulls back over into metagaming where it says, listen, I'm not the biggest threat. Look over at Peter. He's got more points. And Peter says, oh, I don't have... I, I have the most points, but look at the board. You've got more stuff on the board. And most of the time, this is bad and this is miserable and it devolves into a number of very predictable patterns. Some people love it. I used to love it. I was, I was going to say, this is my favorite thing. I don't know why you'd call this bad. I uh, I turn every game into politics, though. So. Thank you. <laughs> so we normally end every episode with a preview of what the next episode is going to be. I'm actually going to surprise AJ here because I have my own list of terms that we didn't define here. And that's what we're going to cover next episode. So it's going to be a list of different game design terms that... Uh, I think a lot of people won't know. Maybe AJ doesn't know. And that's what we're going to cover next episode. Surprise, AJ. Are you surprised? I am. Is that going to be a whole episode? Yep. Wow. Three term episodes. Three terminology episodes. Uh, I'll, I'll give you one. Here, this, this, is the, this is the thing where you normally surprise me, but I'm turning the tables on you. If I said a chapel card, what would that mean? My first thought is it has something to do with a, a scoring condition. So it's like the more of X you have, the more this thing is worth. But it's got to be broader than that, so I don't know. It's actually much more specific than that, and that's what a lot of my list is going to be. It's um, these very specific terms that you'll sometimes hear, and I just want to quickly run through them and be like, hey, if you ever hear this one, here's what it means. Um, So Chapel is a card from Dominion, which trashes cards from your hand. Trashing in Dominion means to take them out of the game. Normally cards keep rotating in and out of your hand, but in Dominion you can do certain things to take cards out of your hand entirely. And I have played enough deck building games, enough games where someone's like, oh, it's a chapel card that I thought it was worth mentioning as a very specific definition. So that's what my list is. It's not it's not so much the broad terms. It's the really vernacular that like... Nitty gritty. Yeah, yeah. The nitty gritty. The, the, um, the oh, what's the word for industry specific terms? Jargon. My list is mostly jargon. So very specific terms that exist uniquely to board games. And some of them I was bewildered until I found the origin of them. Uh, so that's what we'll be doing next week. We'll be going through my list and defining some overly specific terms. Now, AJ, I heard that you like fun. Is this true? Oh man, are you going to surprise me with a fun question? No, because <laughs> <laughs> I hate fun. You're the fun person here. I'm I'm the anti-fun. So the fun question for this week is: What is something that's generally thought of as easy that you are awful at? That's a good question. That's a really interesting one. Have you been reading Icebreaker Lists? That's a great question. No, I'm just good at this. Also, I'm designing a game that's an icebreaker. So, <laughs> <laughs> A lot of the questions that I have for fun questions are ones that I can't format into that game. <laughs> uh, remind me to send you, I haven't read it yet, but there's this great uh, wiki or, or list of icebreakers that comes out of the weekly newsletter I read. Really, really excellent icebreakers. What's something that most people find easy that I find very difficult? Uh, I'm going to say not losing stuff. I lose stuff constantly. I have an Apple Watch and probably 70% of its usage is just finding my phone. My phone, in turn, is my wallet because then I can call my wallet at any point. So I'm so very bad at holding onto things that I've developed multiple subsystems just to stop me from losing my wallet 
Uh, every time I get a piece of paper, I try to scan it or take a photo of it or anything because giving me a piece of paper is roughly the equivalent of using a chapel card. It'll just disappear from the game and you'll never see it again. <laughs> Amazing. What about you? For me, reading. I am so bad at reading. It is actually funny sometimes. So my favorite book that I mentioned last episode, Fifth Business, it took me 10 hours to read 50 pages of my favorite book. Wow. Ever. <laughs> what what what's what stops you? Is it ADD? So a dyslexia thing? As I'm reading, my brain and my eyes read at different speeds. Oh. And so I get distracted and I think about the thing that I'm reading before my eyes it's really weird. There was a program that I found when I was in high school and what it did was <laughs> it took text and instead of reading it like with your eyes manually, you stared at a spot on the screen. And the text would pop in and change the words as it goes. And it would say, this is normal reading speed. Isn't this painfully slow? Let's speed it up. And <laughs> and when it was at like five times normal reading speed, that was when it was comfortable for my brain. And it was the easiest I've ever had a time reading something. But anything more than like huh. a paragraph is really painful for, for me. Is, is this come up because of uh, you're currently getting paid to read? Yes, actually. <laughs> you want to talk about that? Uh, so... Recently, Jellybean instituted a new policy where they'll pay the employees for reading up to two hours a week, and it's related to um, your your work and things that, that will better you as an employee. And I have to listen to this on audiobook because even reading like the descriptions of them can get tricky. <laughs> and uh, it was a little difficult when I had to consolidate feedback for one of the proofreading things that we were doing because I had to read through walls of text that people had sent me. And I've got various coping mechanisms. I've had this my whole life, uh, but it's definitely the thing that I'm awful at. That's interesting. I had no idea. It's, uh, I, I would say it's the same for me, except everyone who knows me knows that I would just lose things constantly. I'm staying with friends at the moment. I bought their car. I don't know where the title is. They don't know where the title is. It's a disaster. <laughs> I have definitely lost the title and I don't know how I could possibly have done that. Anyway, that has been it for the second of our three-part series on defining board game terminology. This has been Fun Problems. You're fun, we're problems, and we will talk to you in two weeks' time. Bye! Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at FunProblemsPod or reach us via email at FunProblemsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.